What do we do with this type of story in Scripture? In case you're visiting or you've missed a couple of weeks here, you do need to know that we didn't pick this story randomly, as if to say, this would be a great story to read and to hear this morning. Where? to record from there. I think it died. I'm sorry. Um, parts of this story, needless to say, are dark. There's war that results in what our narrator calls a slaughter. One family in particular is called down to an orphan named Ichabod. His father and his uncle have died in battle. His grandfather dies at the news of their death, and his mother passes soon after the delivery. Now, Ichabod, whose name itself denotes sadness, the glory of the Lord has departed. His, his ongoing life is just going to be a reminder of tragedy, of the tragedy of his own family, the wickedness of his father and his uncle, who were priests, and of his passive grandfather. Now, if this isn't enough, even at the end of the story, when we think things are about to recover, the ark of God has made it back into Israel and people are celebrating, all of a sudden, 70 people die because they've looked at the ark of God. Now, the parts of the story that aren't dark are at best strange. Tumors and mice made of gold, cows delivering the ark. Then there's the Ark of God itself, which, oddly enough, is the main character in the story. At the start, the Ark of God is a prized object. It's sure to give victory to Israel. But once it's captured by the Philistines, it quickly becomes this trophy of war. And then, all of a sudden, overnight, the Ark becomes something like this game of hot potato. They pass it from city to city, from Ashdod to Gath to Ekron, each city hoping to gain some advantage from the ark, but getting only a disease instead. And surprisingly, even once the ark makes it home to the Israelites, the Israelites are afraid of it. Now here is a critical question at the end of our story. Who's able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? Where is God in this story? Is he in the box, the ark, or isn't he in the box? What's he doing? Here's what I think God is doing in this story. He's overcoming false religion. Three times, time after time after time, God is overcoming a false form of religion. But throughout all of it, he is also showing us how to live by genuine faith. God despises phony religion. Religion that doesn't really give us life. So in each main scene, God overcomes a form of false religion. And then all the way through, he shows us how to have genuine, life-giving faith. This sermon's going to have two parts. The first thing we're going to do as look at how God overcomes these three different forms of false religion. So first, he overcomes the religion, the false religion of what I'm going to call convenience. So last week we learned that the people of Israel are being led by corrupt, bully priests, people who don't really know God. This is who Hophni and Phinehas are. 
And here, when the Israelites go out to battle, it becomes all the more clear. Because if you're an Israelite, the very first thing you do before you go out to battle is you pray. You ask the God, is this a battle you want us to fight? There's none of that here. But soon after they lose, here's what the Israelites ask. Why has the Lord defeated us? They haven't even prayed, and yet their question after they lose is, why has God defeated us? When we read stories like this, we can't be lazy. And here's what I mean. Even the question of why is resting on the assumption that God's the one who defeated Israel. Do we accept the assumption? Is it God's fault that Israel lost? Now, of course, Israel has lost battles in the past because God was against them. But even in those cases, the problem was with Israel, not with God. Their sin made them weak in battle. You know, Israel was always a small nation. And so even at their best, they were never the strongest fighting force. What made them great and fierce was the strength of God fighting for them. But when Israel was in sin, each time they became weak in battle. So Israel's response here isn't to look in on some possible sin in them. Instead, it's to ask, why has God defeated us? And so instantly they turn to the Ark of God. Again, they don't pray. They turn to the Ark of Covenant, the Covenant, in hopes that they might be able to plug into some of God's power. They might get a jolt very quickly of some of God's strength. Now, in one sense, this is really good. They turn to this object which God himself has invested with meaning. And he said, this is going to be a symbol of my presence with you. But do they really want God with them with all that that entails? That's the question we need to ask. So the ark is brought into the camp of Israel and the people are immediately ecstatic. There's no way they can lose now. Even the Philistines, the brute warriors that they are, are struck with fear. The Philistines themselves have heard of this God of Israel. How he delivered them from Egypt and conquered Pharaoh. But still, the Philistines muster their courage and shockingly, the Israelites are defeated once again. In fact, this defeat is worse than the first. You see, the first battle, they lost 4,000 men. The second, with the Ark of God, they lose 30,000. What's wrong? Well, the Philistines think this means that their God is stronger than Yahweh. But the next scene with Yahweh and Dagon is going to prove that's not the case. What's happened here? Here's what's happened. The Israelites enter into battle without prayer, and then they blame God. And blaming God when your plans don't work out is like the proverb. It's from Proverbs 19.3. When a man's folly brings his way to ruin, his heart rages against the Lord. We often hear people ask about why God allows so many bad things to happen. But I wonder how many of the bad things that happen are really due to our own bad decisions. Not because God has done something to us. 
The Israelites think if they can get more religious very quickly, if they can harness God's power, they can fix the problem. But instead, actually, the problem gets worse. And this is what happens when we try to domesticate God. When we try to follow God at our own convenience and in our own way. This is what the Israelites have done. They've come to believe they can fit God in a box and carry him about with them wherever they please. They can harness his power whenever they want it. And they've forgotten that this God is holy and wild. He cannot be harnessed for our own purposes at our own convenience. He can only be obeyed, surrendered to. This is the false religion of convenience. And God overcomes it by allowing God, to, allowing Israel to be beaten, defeated. We do have to understand that God wants to help us. When we come to him, he wants to help us. But his power is not harnessed at will. We can't just plug into it whenever we want. In fact, the way that we access God's power is actually through surrender and through obedience. And this is what Israel was lacking. So are you surrendering to God? Do you actually surrender to him or, and try to obey him? Or do you try to access his power when it's convenient for you and when you really need it? To access his power requires a kind of character that is constantly surrendering to him. So this is the first form of false religion that God is overcoming in our story. This false religion of convenience. Second, God overcomes a false religion of idolatry. Second, he overcomes a false religion of idolatry. So the battle makes it appear that Yahweh has been defeated. Right? The Philistines put the ark of God on a display as a trophy in their temple. And by placing it right there in the temple of Dagon, what they're saying is that Dagon has been victorious over Israel and over Israel's God. If Yahweh can do anything at this point, it's only by serving Dagon. See, now the Philistines think they can harness Yahweh's power. But they go into their temple the first morning after and discover that things aren't as they left them. Dagon has fallen down before the ark. They have to prop him back up. Now, if you, you know the person narrating this story is having fun right now. Really enjoying this. The second morning, it's even worse. Dagon has fallen down again before the ark, and this time his hands and his head have been cut off. Not only is Dagon being dismantled piece by piece, but the Philistines start experiencing a widespread occurrence of tumors. Now, the mention of mice later in our story, it raises the question of whether they're experiencing something like a bubonic plague, which is spread by fleas on animals like mice, and it leads to swelling that looks like tumors. Nevertheless, the ark, again, it becomes this hot potato. It's sent from place to place with the hopes that someone can hold on to it as a trophy of war. Maybe Yahweh will even serve our purposes now. But everywhere the ark goes, sickness follows after it. So finally, the Philistines say, get it out of here and send an offering with it, whatever it takes. 
Now, the story, this might be outrageous, maybe even unbelievable to you, but this fits. People in the ancient world were used to building gods they could control, and suddenly, within this world emerges a god who cannot be controlled. He can only be submitted to, and this is what the Philistines do. The Philistines are brought to the point of offering sacrifices to the God of Israel himself. But does this kind of idolatry fit in our world? We are blind to think that this was only an ancient world problem. Idolatry is when you build your life on something that cannot fully satisfy you. Anything. When you build your life on something that cannot fully satisfy you, that's an idol. You build your life on something that cannot bring you ultimate, lasting happiness. And as it's been said, the human heart is an idol factory. The mind is a perpetual forge of idols. <coughs> We're constantly creating new idols for ourselves. We all search for something to which we can give our ultimate allegiance. And a lot of us, our attention bounces from one thing to the next. We take good things like work, material things, love, even family. And we make them into ultimate things. And we hope <coughs> that they might satisfy us. If there is anything in your life more fundamental than God to your happiness to your purpose and your identity, that is an idol. It might as well look like Dagon. But nothing has the weight and substance to it to hold our life and to satisfy our happiness except God. So at some point, all of our idols end up a little bit like Dagon. Whether our idol is work, money, sex, family, material stuff, just buying one thing after the other, whatever it may be, we're going to have to keep propping it up like the Philistines, and it's going to keep falling down and failing to fully satisfy us. We've got to go back to it. We've got to back, go back to new versions of it. And either we're going to come to a place of despair and say, I'll never be fully satisfied, or we're going to turn to this God whom we cannot control, but who can make us truly happy. Who can truly satisfy us. So are you turning to him? Are you turning to this God who can truly satisfy you? Who can make you truly happy? Or are you searching for all other forms of happiness? In all other kinds of places? So first, God overcomes this false religion of convenience. And then he overcomes this false religion of idolatry. And lastly, in the final section of our story, he over overcomes a, another form of religion. And this one's probably the most difficult for me. We're going to call it the false religion of irreverence. The false religion of irreverence. You see, the ark is returned to Israel. Israel is elated. They immediately build a sacrifice. The ark is home, which means God is home. God is back in Israel. 
But immediately following this, we're told that God struck some of the people of Israel because they looked upon the ark of God. So first, God has defeated them in battle. Not once, but twice. Then, when God gets back to town, He kills some of them for looking at the ark. How do you win with this God? What's the deal? Here's the problem this time. Israel wants God to be powerful at their convenience, but they do not want this God to be holy. They want God to be present in His power, but they don't want Him to be present with Him in His with them in His holiness. They want to be able to harness His strength at this moment's notice, but they don't want to have to do all the work of reverencing this God. Some of us are going to look at this story, and we're going to be suspicious because we live in a modern world, and things like this just don't happen. Some of us are going to look at it and we're going to have an air of moral superiority. How could God do this? And this is where God is going to challenge us too. This God cannot be controlled. God is the most wild thing in all the world. And he is also the most holy thing in all the world. All of us are going to compromise our morality over and over. We can try the air of moral superiority, but the reality is that we will compromise our morality, but this God will never compromise His. He never will. And this means that He's not to be treated casually, irreverently. What does this mean in our world? The highest virtue in our culture, I think, is authenticity. It's being true to oneself. And if that's our highest virtue, it means that holiness and reverence have to be played down. I'm just being me. And we also tend to spiritualize things to an extreme. Religion has everything to do with what's inside of me. This is where the real me is. But God cuts people down here because they look at the ark. Not that he dwells in it only, but he's invested this thing, this material object, with the symbolic meaning of his own presence with them. So here's what I think we can draw from this. Stuff matters to God in worship. Stuff matters to God. Our own bodies and the way that we treat our bodies matters to God. The places we worship and the way we worship matters to God. Worship isn't something we can define for ourselves and call it good. As if watching a TV preacher is as good with gathering, as gathering with a group of Christians. Or taking a walk in the woods is equal to gathering with a group of Christians in this holy Communion. Worship is defined for us by the God who is to be worshipped with this holy reverence. We are to bring our bodies before him and join with others in a holy bond. The whole, this whole moment is to be treated with reverence. A certain amount of fear that we get to be here in the presence of God.
So God is overcoming three forms of false religion here. He's overcoming this religion of convenience. He's overcoming a, a false religion of idolatry and a false religion of irreverence, of casual worship. But God doesn't tear down simply to tear down. Throughout this story, God is also showing us how to have genuine faith. Now, here's what it means to have genuine faith in this story. We surrender to the God who fights our battles for us. Let me show you what I mean. Israel loses the battles, don't they? But who's taken as a prisoner of war? God himself in the form of the ark. He goes into the enemy territory having been defeated, or so it seems. But while there, God whittles down the enemy. He terrifies them and makes them paranoid until they finally send him away. The people that Israel has lost to in battle, God defeats on his own without their help. In their own territory. This story is one of those small stories that's part of the larger work God's doing to redeem us and to redeem the world. You see, just like the Philistines went into their temple those early mornings and they expected to find things just as they left them and were shocked to discover that the God of Israel was actually alive and their God was dead. In the same way, the women who had followed Jesus went to his tomb early in the morning and they expected to find things just as they left them. Jesus, dead, defeated by evil. Instead, to their great surprise, Jesus was in fact alive. And death had been toppled. You see, we have enemies that are greater than the Philistines. We fight against evil, sin, Satan, and death itself, which works to destroy us and works to destroy humanity and all goodness in the world. And we've all been defeated by these enemies, haven't we? All of us have given in to evil, to idolatry, and death is going to come to all of us. But just like Yahweh was taken as a prisoner of war, so was Jesus. He went to the land of our enemy. Jesus allowed himself to be killed by evil. And just like the ark in the temple of Dagon, Jesus went into the land of sin, evil, and death, and he disarmed it. He destroyed its power by rising from the dead. This little story is part of this much larger story. Is this the God you believe in? The God who is wild and holy, who has defeated your greatest enemies and invites you into deep happiness and satisfaction. Whatever your enemy is right now, whether it's fear, whether it's loneliness, whether it's some particular sin, that you are holding on to and you don't know how to let go of, you're terrified of letting go of it. God has gone into enemy territory and he has defeated the power of sin so that you can be free. Don't you want to believe in this God instead of the false and never satisfying way of religion that's by convenience, idolatry, and irreverence? 
this wild and holy God. He's the only one who can give you life. And he invites you into it over and over and over again. Will you come and find life? In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.